Hello listeners, my name is Tashara and welcome to another episode of the LSE Focal Point podcast. Today I'm very excited to be joined by Salita Marcelli. Salita is the Chief Investment Officer for the Americas region for UBS Global Wealth Management. She was previously the Global Head of Fixed Income, Currencies and Commodities at JP Morgan Global Wealth Management and worked in equity research prior to this. She holds a BA in Economics and History from Brandeis University and an MBA from NYU Stern School of Business. Salita, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's great to be with you. It's great to have you here. So Salita, let's start by talking a bit about you. You started your career in equity research and moved into wealth management. Could you tell us more about what motivated you to make this transition as well as your journey to becoming CIO? Of course, you're definitely sending me down the memory lane. Look, as I mentioned, out of college, I actually joined a bank uh, in New York in their equity research department. And maybe for those of uh, our listeners, maybe who might not be familiar with equity research, it, it is where you focus on a specific industry and analyze balance sheets, income and cash flows of public companies and then make projections about the future earnings in order to recommend whether people should buy or sell the stock. And I thought at the time that this would be an amazing learning opportunity, and it really was. But after a few years, I knew that this was not specifically the role I wanted to like further my career in. I felt like maybe for me, something was missing. And I think it was really that I felt much more alive when, in addition to analysis, a good chunk of my work involved with transacting with people and dealing with other people as part of that job on a day-to-day basis. So this is really what ultimately led me to go back to business school and also then ultimately led me to my next job where I started my career at JP Morgan Private Bank. Private banking to me had a more personal touch because it involved providing personalized financial and banking services to ultra high net worth individuals and to help them protect and grow their assets. I was always on the market, financial market side, on the investment side, but at the end of the day, the end clients I was dealing with, I was involved with on a more personalized basis. So in my time at JP Morgan, I was able to move around various roles where I learned more and more about specific asset classes and investment solutions while taking on more responsibility with each step. So I spent some time on the emerging markets debt trading desk. This is the bonds that are issued by emerging market countries. And then I advanced to running the fixed income business for the international private bank and then led to a global role. I was responsible for fixed income and currency commodity business for our global wealth management business. So I think this combination of taking on more management experience, asset class expertise, and understanding of clients' personal situations in private banking served as a great foundation to become a chief investment officer in wealth management, where you know we provide advice to clients across all investable asset classes, but have to apply it to their own financial situations and then build customized portfolios to help them achieve their life goals. Very interesting and inspiring journey indeed. And you mentioned earlier about how interacting with clients was something that was really important to you and you touched upon your role as well. 
but could you tell us in a little bit more detail about your role and what this sort of entails on a day-to-day -day basis? Of course. So uh, in a nutshell, right, uh, I would say there are three major things that as part of my job. One is thought leadership across investments. The second one is portfolio management. So you take all that port port thought leadership and translate into asset allocation. And then the third part of it, Etienne, is providing investment advice tailored to those clients. So uh, let me just kind of get a little bit deeper into it for you. So in my role as the chief investment officer within UBS Global Wealth Management, I oversee a team of almost 90 people, most of which are financial market experts in the Americas, which is part of a broader global CIO organization of over you know, 200 people with offices around the world in Zurich, London, you know, Singapore, Hong Kong, and other hubs. And we have analysts that cover a wide variety of areas ranging from, like I said, portfolio management, asset allocation, to equity strategy, to bonds, uh, commodities, currencies, alternative investments like hedge funds, private equity, and sustainable investments and more. So at the end of the day, my goal and my team's goal is to partner with our financial advisors and their clients to achieve all their near and long-term financial goals, right? Whether it's something tactical, like identifying investments to navigate higher inflation that we're seeing right now, or longer term, like coming up with the right investment strategy to meet their retirement needs, or even, you know, helping shape their legacy after they're gone. So of course, part of this is constantly analyzing what's going on in the world and how global developments impact economy and in specific investments, whether it be stocks, bonds, or real estate. So we can communicate our outlook to our financial advisors and clients and help them understand how it impacts their own portfolio. So just to give you an idea of my sort of a typical task in each day. So first of all, this role requires a lot of reading about what's going on in the world and following the different market moves to set, stay up to date. And then it involves a lot of debating with our teams, our market views with this with CIO colleagues around the world to clear out the noise, because there's a lot of noise in day-to-day -day news, and get deeper and understand any developments to make sure we have confidence in what we're telling our advisors and clients to do. So we would need to check our own views and debate it heavily. And then finally, you have to make a decision in terms of what our house view is going to be. And then based on our house view, we make decisions on asset allocation in our portfolio. So that's part of our day-to-day -day role. And then, of course, working with the rest of the CIO team to publish reports and articles that financial advisors can share. And then I meet with different advisors and clients to discuss their investments. A big portion of my time is spent with talking uh, and expressing our views to, to our advisors and clients, basically. And then, and then the last part, I would say, is speaking at conferences or on the financial media, on TV or podcast broadcasts about our market outlook. Great. So sort of moving forward, let's discuss more about your industry itself. So right now, the wealth management industry is experiencing this intersection of science, technology, and human-based advice. Could you please give us some examples of how UBS is responding to this interesting shift? 
Yeah, this is a great question. We spend a lot of time on this. Now, we know that technology is fully integrated into every aspect of our clients' lives, right? Including how they stay connected and informed, how they think about their wealth. And we need to make sure we fit seamlessly into this equation as a wealth manager. That's why, as you probably might have seen in the news, we have been investing heavily at UBS in digital advice and technology to make sure we are ahead of and also adapting to evolving client behavior. And with this approach, we can help existing clients through smart digital platforms and ensure we're also positioned for a whole new emerging potential client base as well. Like those of you probably on this podcast today are about to graduate college. But I think it's important to understand though, that we're using technology to empower our financial advisors and not to replace them. We know that clients differ widely in how digital they want their experience to be. And we also know that at a minimum, our clients still want the ability to pick up the phone or meet with someone in person, especially when they have some of those big life decisions regarding their investment strategy or when the market environment gets increasingly complex and confusing. Now, if we can provide clarity, simplicity, and peace of mind for our clients through the powerful combination of an advisor and a user-friendly digital experience, that's a good thing. We might also be surprised to know that next-gen research we've done recently shows that younger clients are actually more inclined to have an advisor-enabled conversation than a digital-only experience. So for our CIO team specifically, this technology evolution is also important because it really changes the way we reach our advisor and clients with our insights. Great. So definitely some really interesting changes underway. And on this topic of science and technology and disruption around big data and you know AI, which you've just mentioned, many other trends are also um, influencing the investment landscape. How does innovation play into your thinking and decision-making process as a CIO when you're identifying risks and opportunities? Yeah, so, so innovation and disruption is definitely a key part of our decision-making process, especially as we think about identifying longer-term investment opportunities that could drive up performance over the coming decade. So in CIO, we like to refer to this as finding the next big thing. The one point we always make is that the last decade was all about investing in the technology sector itself. And we saw the domination of some of these tech giants like Apple. But we believe that the next decade will be about investing in the disruptors in sectors undergoing technology transformation, which is why some of our favorite disruptive themes right now are fintech, disruption in finance, health tech, disruption in healthcare, and green tech, right? Uh, which is disruption in the energy sector. And of course, technologies like artificial intel- intelligence, cyber, cybersecurity, big data are key enablers in these areas. Now, I would say more broadly, when we think about disruption, we like to start with the trends we believe with a high degree of certainty will shape society over the coming years. So what are these, right? These include aging demographics in developed world, 
and growing populations and urbanization in developing countries. And then we think about how technology can solve some problems associated with these trends. For example, automation can replace workers in an aging workforce, right? Green technologies can help address the resource burden of a larger population. And technology that allows to work from home can enable people to work outside of just striking distance of large cities. And all those therefore present potential investment opportunities. So you see, it's not just about which asset classes have attractive valuations or what's going to happen with interest rates and other macro factors. It is also about this very influential and, and destructive trends that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. Great, some really interesting points to think about. And aside from low interest rates, another feature of today's macro environment is historically high levels of inflation, which has been the hottest topic for investors over the past several months. How is CIO thinking about this evolution in inflation this year and beyond? We are in a historic inflation environment. Inflation is being driven by a multitude of factors. Some of these factors may persist, but as the pandemic is brought under better control, we do expect inflation to slow sharply. Now, COVID-19 triggered a big shift in consumer demand away from services like leisure travel and dining out, right, towards durable goods. At the same time, global supply chains have been affected, making it more difficult for manufacturers to keep up, ship things as well. Autos, I think, are a good example of this. Sales have been soft in recent months because dealers, dealer lots are empty and prices having, have increased really rapidly. Now, in addition to all of the delays in shipping goods from one place to another, shipping costs are way above normal and businesses are passing along those costs to consumers and high energy prices are pushing the inflation rate up further. Labor shortages are forcing businesses to raise wages in order to attract workers. And especially for smaller businesses, there's really little choice but to raise prices to make up for it. So as the pandemic is brought under better control, we do believe consumer spending patterns should go back to normal and more people should return to the labor market. That will help to ease the supply shortages we're seeing now. And we expect to see some big price declines, especially for, let's say, um, the used autos, which were in the headlines a lot, right, where the prices were, you know, doubling last year. So we expect inflation to fall back towards 2% by the end of the year. Now, of course, what is important about inflation is how it impacts the Federal Reserve's interest rate. Fed officials were initially maintaining a very patient stance on inflation, but that tune changed recently, and it's very likely they begin hiking interest rates in the United States in March and continue to do so periodically throughout the rest of the year. And importantly, we believe stocks should be able to still do well despite the Fed's tightening policy. But you know, nevertheless, as Fed policy becomes maybe more hawkish or less market-friendly, we should expect more volatility and lower returns than we've seen over the past few years. And it will be as important as ever 
to have, uh, I say, a globally diversified portfolio. And these are all interesting changes that we've discussed and sort of in light of everything. How has the competitive environment within wealth management evolved since the financial crisis? And how does one stay ahead of the curve? Another great question. So look, the wealth management industry has gone through an undeniable transformation over the last decade plus. And I feel very fortunate to be part of this industry. It's really exciting one. It's important to keep track of some of the trends that are shaping the industry so we can evolve alongside industry and our clients. So first of all, we're seeing a massive shift underway in who controls the wealth around the world. Okay. Research shows that over 22 trillion US dollars is expected to be inherited over the next 25 years. So wealth will be changing hands to younger generations who have different preferences around how they want to receive advice. And this ties back to the point we discussed earlier on investing in technology to complement human-based advice, right? We're also seeing a big shift in demographics. In the United States, for example, over $11 trillion is now controlled by women in the United States, and this number is only growing. We know that women on average live longer than men, but one troubling stat from a survey we did among investors is that only 20% of couples work together on a long-term financial plan together. And the person in charge skews heavily to males. Now, with this in mind, it's important for us to think about this demographic shift going forward and how best to position ourselves and our resources to help women own their worth and gain financial independence. Now, outside of this shifting client base, another big evolution I've seen it is in the fundamental approach taking my competitors to wealth management. For years, simply beating a benchmark and focusing solely on performance seemed to be the goal of many financial advisors and institutions. But we believe a wealth manager must provide a lot more than that. So at UBS, we try to go beyond the traditional sort of goals-based approach long used in our industry. Great. Some really good initiatives to respond to these changes. So you've picked up a lot of interesting skills and experiences on the way, but sort of looking back at your career with, you know, the knowledge that you have now, what advice would you give now to your younger self? Yeah, great question. The first thing is don't overthink early career choices, right? Careers are not linear where you go now, most likely where you won't be in 10, 20, um, 30 years from now. So it's important to collect learnings and experiences. It's, it's, it's more than not, careers are like a jungle. Sometimes you need to go sideways to go upwards. So building those experiences and having fun along the way is important. And then another advice that I would give to myself is that it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. By the way, it is a cliche, but so true, so true. And a lot of people, when I was much younger, out of college, several years out of college, told me this, but at the time, it goes from one year and then comes out the other. Only later in life, you realize that what they said was actually uh, very worthwhile. Because when you're young and we have so much energy and desire to absorb everything that comes in your way, you want things to move forward instantly, like yesterday. And I think 
one advice, I guess, is that I probably would be kinder to myself for things that I don't have control over and enjoy the journey. That's really great advice that I think a lot of us can and should apply. It has been a pleasure having you here today and thank you for taking the time to speak with us. And thank you to our audience for listening and stay tuned for more episodes to come.